good day's work is if I have one typed page at the end. One. You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Milinowski. Today, we invite you into the writing practice of American novelist Paul Auster. Two pages is great. Three is a miracle. You know, it happens maybe four times a year that I can do three pages. But if I can get the one page done, I feel, I feel satisfied. Paul Auster is widely acclaimed for novels such as The New York Trilogy, Moon Palace, Leviathan, and The Brooklyn Follies. Writing a passage 10 or 15 times, going over and over and over, fixing the sentences until it looks like a piece of music, effortless. That's the work. The hard work is in trying to make it look easy. Enjoy this interview recorded at Paul Oster's home in Brooklyn, New York in 2014. One day in late September of 1954, age seven and a half, I had a cold or a flu and I had to stay home from school. And the first game of the World Series was broadcast on television that day and I watched it. And this was the game in which Willie Mays made the most famous catch in the history of the sport. Running, 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 running hundreds of feet to catch a ball over his shoulder with his back to the, to the field. Magnificent catch. So he became a hero for me because I thought I had never seen anything more spectacular than that catch. So the following spring, the next season, 55, Uh, my parents had friends who had season tickets to the Giants games, which were played in a place called the Polo Grounds, which again, no longer exists. It's been demolished. It's uh, only a memory now. Um, so we went to a game. It was a night game. We sat in the box seats. And after the game, as we were leaving the stadium, there was Willie Mays standing in his street clothes already. And... Uh, I, I remember feeling, he was 24 years old, just think, 24. And I, I timidly went up to him and said, Mr. Mays, may I please have your autograph? And he said, sure, kid, sure. Got a pencil? And I didn't have a pencil. My father didn't have a pencil. My mother didn't have a pencil. Their friends didn't have pencils, and no one had a pen. And then Willie Mays said, Sorry, kid, ain't got no pencil, can't give no autograph. And then he left. And I was really very upset, I have to say, shaken. I was so disappointed. So disappointed that I actually cried in the car. It's a stupid response, but it was a big, big moment for me. After that day, I always made sure to walk around with a pencil in my pocket or a pen because I didn't want to be caught unprepared again. And then I conclude, as I like to tell my children, that's how I became a writer. I ask whoever is listening to this voice to forget the words it is speaking. It is important that no one listen too carefully. I want these words to vanish, so to speak, into the silence they came from, and for nothing to remain but a memory of their presence, a token of the fact that they were once here and are here no longer. And that during 
their brief life, they seemed not so much to be saying any particular thing as to be the thing that was happening at the same time a certain body was moving in a certain space, that they moved along with everything else that moved. You know, all through my youth um, and, you know, into my 20s, uh, I was trying to write novels then. And I must have written oh, 1,000 pages, 1,500 pages of aborted novels, things I could ne never finish, uh, piles and piles of manuscripts. Um, and this, is, this was my, my apprenticeship. This is how I, you know, I learned how to put sentences together. Never published any of that stuff. But some of those ideas later resurfaced in books I published later when I was older and capable of doing it. So for me, it was very slow. Early on, I could write poems because they were short. But longer forms were uh, too difficult for me. Now, it's also instinctive. I'm barely aware of what I'm doing. But at the same time, I don't write fast, and I've never written fast. Um, for me, a good day's work, and this is eight hours of work, a good day's work is if I have one typed page at the end. One. Two pages is great. Three is a miracle. You know, it happens maybe four times a year that I can do three pages. But if I get the one page done, I feel, I feel satisfied. And so that means generally writing a passage 10 or 15 times, uh, going over and over and over, fixing the sentences, you know, trying to hear the rhythm. Um, and uh, until, until it looks like a piece of music, effortless, smooth, um, with the energy that I want. Um, and uh, that's the work. The hard work is in trying to make it look easy. Sometimes, um, you know, I'll make a, a lot of false starts earlier in the day. <clears throat> I'm starting on a new paragraph because I always end a day's work at the end of a paragraph. I'm never in the middle of a paragraph. So, a new, and the paragraph for me is the unit of composition for prose. In poetry, it's the line, but in prose, it's the paragraph. So each paragraph is like a little work in itself, a poem in prose. And, um, and so I'm always raking through everything. Uh, even if I'm writing a long book, every once in a while I'll take a pause and I'll go back and start reading it all over again. I call it raking. I rake it. You know, it's like raking leaves. You want to get all the leaves off the lawn. You want it to look perfect. And, um, and so sometimes it takes months before you realize, oh, that sentence is not a good sentence. I have to, I have to fix it. The other thing is um, I get up from my chair a lot during the day, and I walk around the room. And um, I find that uh, moving helps generate uh, thoughts and words uh, because there is this kind of music inside the body that is language. And by just moving around, new things come to me that don't come to me when I'm sitting. You know, there's that beautiful, beautiful um, essay by the Russian poet Asip Mandelstam. It's called Conversation About Dante. 
And uh, um, he talks about Dante's poetry and the rhythms of it being very close to what it feels like to walk. It's like the human gait. And then he asked the most beautiful question, the question that only a poet can ask. He said, I wonder how many pairs of sandals Dante wore out while writing the Divine Comedy. Beautiful, no? Well, I'm wearing out lots of shoes too, walking around trying to find the rhythms of the work that I'm hoping to do. To say the simplest thing possible, to go no farther than whatever it is I happen to find before me. To begin with this landscape, for example, or even to note the things that are most near, as if in the tiny world before my eyes I might find an image of the life that exists beyond me, as if in a way I do not fully understand each thing in my life were connected to every other thing, which in turn connected me to the world at large, the endless world that looms up in the mind as lethal and unknowable as desire itself. See, when I was younger, I, I wanted to make beautiful things. And then, uh, as I got older and more experienced in this, I understood that's not what it's about. The, the essence of being an artist is to confront the thing you're trying to do, to tackle it head on. And if in wrestling with these things, you manage to make something that's good, well, it will have its own beauty, but it's not a kind of beauty that you can predict. You know, it's nothing you can strive for. What you have to strive for is to engage with your material as deeply as you can. Even if it's, you know, funny, even if you're trying to be funny, you have to, you have to engage with it as deeply as you can also. Um, and um, so, and I think this is why, or this is how I think I justify to myself how I've spent my life, which is a very way, strange way to live, you know? Alone in a room every day, putting words on pieces of paper. Wow. I mean, there are a lot of other things I can think that would be more amusing to do uh, and more uh, meaningful to the world. But the thing about doing this, which is unlike any other job, is that you have to give maximum effort all the time. You can't slack off. You have to give every ounce of your being to what you're doing. And I don't think there are many jobs that require that. Uh, you see lazy lawyers, lazy doctors, lazy judges. They can get through things. You even see lazy athletes. Huh? who just are not making maximum effort all the time. But you can't be a writer or a painter or a musician unless you make maximum effort. So I can get up from a day's work and I've done nothing. I've crossed out every sentence I've written, crumpled up pieces of paper, thrown them into the garbage can, and I have nothing to show for it. But I can at least stand up and say at the end of the day, I gave it everything I had. I tried 100%. And there's something satisfying about that, just trying as hard as you can to do something. I remain in the room in which I am writing this. I put one foot in front of the other. I put one word in front of the other. And for each step I take, I add another word, as if for each word to be spoken, there were another space to be crossed, a distance to be filled by my body 
as it moves through this space. It is a journey through space, even if I get nowhere, even if I end up in the same place I started. It is a journey through space, as if into many cities and out of them, as if across deserts, as if to the edge of some imaginary ocean where each thought drowns in the relentless waves of the real. As I said in one book, one of my novels, stories happen to the people who are able to tell them. And, and I think this is true. A lot of people just blunder through and they're not noticing things. But if you're noticing things, then you might, you might notice something that's very interesting or unusual. Um, but you have to keep your eyes open. That's the job of a writer, to keep his eyes open. Um, there are people who are not sensitive to language, people who aren't you know, interested in poetry, for example, which I still am, deeply. Um, and they read novels the way they read newspapers, for the story and the information. And they're not really listening to the sentences. There are a lot of people like that. But these are not, you know, I'm, saying, I'm sure they enjoy reading, but they're not getting the ultimate pleasure that one can find in books, which is in the, the style which is all about music, tone, and rhythm. And, um, and I believe that if you're a very sensitive reader, the, the music is also carrying meanings. Um, and uh, it's very hard to articulate what those meanings are, but um, they're important, they're important. And the more attuned to those things a reader is, the more he's gonna get out of the book which is why every reader reads a different book from every other reader. You come to that, that volume and you have your life and your knowledge and your past and your experiences and your point of view about everything and you're going to read it in one way and somebody else will read it in another way. And, uh, uh, and I, I'm interested too in books that um, have some holes in them, some blanks, some spaces for the reader to breathe in, um, where the reader is, is forced to be an active participant and fill in blanks himself. Um, there's some very good writers who I think write too much. They overwrite. There are too many words in their books. And um, um, uh, descriptions of things, for example, which is a big, a big question. You know, how much detail do you want to put in about a person walks into a room? Do you want to describe what's in the room or not? Is it important to describe what's in the room? Um, uh, so there are some writers who tell you every piece of furniture in that room. And after a while, you're choking, you're, you're suffocating, you just, you know, you, you feel that you're, you're just drowning in words and nothing much of any importance is happening even if it's very beautifully written. Um, so I try to keep things uh, lean, as lean as I can. I want to take out as much as I can, rather than put a lot of things in. The more I can take out, the happier I am. And um, whenever I, I get bogged down, sometimes you know, I, can get, I can overwrite myself at times, get too, too complicated. And I have to step back. And I have this phrase that I tell myself, swift and lean, swift and lean. And I just try to remember that, swift and lean. So you're just 
feeling that you're propelling yourself through the book as a, as a, as a reader and as a writer too, that every word counts. Every, every comma is important so that, you know, there's not a moment where you're not completely absorbed as a reader. That's the kind of book I want to write. Um, a few years ago, let's see, seven years ago, almost eight years ago, Siri and I went to Key West, Florida in the winter for a writer's festival. And one of the writers there was a woman named Amy Tan. I don't know if you know who this is. She's an American writer of Chinese descent who's had a big success. She's a very popular novelist in America. Well, it turns out that Amy has friends who live right next door to Willie Mays. <laughs> so, <laughs> in Atherton, which is outside of San Francisco. And she called them up and said, go out to a bookstore, buy Paul's book, and then ring Willie Mays' door and go in and read him the story. And so they did it. And Willie sat there, you know, he was in his late 70s then. And uh, apparently, I mean, this is all second or third hand. It was Amy who told me this. But she said that her friends told her that Willie Mays sat there with tears in his eyes. And he just kept saying, 52 years, 52 years, 52 years. And then he, um, he took out a baseball and he autographed it for me. Gave it to his friends, who gave it to Amy. And she invited me over to the house and she presented me with this baseball signed by Willie Mays 52 years after the, the thing had happened when I didn't get his autograph. Now, of course, I didn't care about this anymore, but I was so moved by this story that the thing should come around full circle and that Willie Mays himself should have been so moved by the story. It's fantastic. So I guess sometimes you have to wait a long time before stories find their endings, but this one had an ending, and for once, it was a happy ending. Paul Oster was interviewed by Caspar Beck-Duc, who also edited and produced the interview. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Christian Lund. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk or you can find it on YouTube. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>